Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Well, I've often said and quoted A.W. Tozer. Some of you have probably read him, Knowledge of the Holy. He says that what, com- what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why does he say this? Because we become servants of the things we worship, or of the thing we worship, ultimately. This is true for religious people and non-religious people. So, for example, if, if our God is wealth, or maybe the attendant goods that come with wealth, comfort, or pleasure, or security, or good food, or good vacations, or nice stuff, on and on, then our lives begin to sort of bend around this God in the shape of maybe overworking, or neglecting our families and friends, or, or seeing people as commodities, or compromising our morals for the sake of the deal, or whatever it is. Or say we do believe in God, in the religious sense we believe in, in God, But deep down, we believe that the basic thing about God is that he is a a powerful judge, but not very gracious. Then our days are going to be sort of haunted by a servile fear of God, fear that we're displeasing him all the time on the one hand, or maybe on the other hand, a a religious pride that we're performing and living up to the standards of this judgmental God, unlike our, our damned neighbors, you know? So one leads to shame. We're always like servile and, and, and fear and afraid. And the other to pride. And either shame or pride come to sort of define everything we think and do and how we interact. So what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is true not just for individuals, but also eventually as individuals collect into a society. So Tozer goes on. He says, The history of mankind will show that no people has ever risen above its religion. In other words, culture and religion are sort of very closely tied. No people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always what in his heart or her heart they conceive God to be like. So first slide here, the rest of the quote. Worship is is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our own mental image of God. And he says this isn't true for just individuals, but but of, of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. This is the sixth and the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany. And the thrust of this season is, is a basic question, who is Jesus? And there's this one unifying theme the season provides. He is the light of the world. That's, that's the, the theme of Epiphany. Jesus is revealed as the light to the Gentiles, the light of the world. And so we began the season following the Magi and their sort of light-guided quest to find Jesus. They were the walking fulfillment of ancient prophecy, Isaiah 60. Three, nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. And now, six weeks later, Epiphany climaxes and and closes with this sort of punctuation mark, the transfiguration of Jesus. His face shining like the sun. His robes bright as lightning. And in light of Tozer's words, um, I want to help you just try to let the transfiguration of Jesus sort of stir us, stir our deep thoughts about God. 
What comes to mind when we think of him? Ultimately, so that your worship and my worship is not base, but it's pure. And that your soul is inflamed by an image of God who is, who is these three things. Of God who is heavy, of God who is holy, and of God who is beautiful. That's what the transfiguration shows us. So first, in the transfiguration of Jesus, we see the heaviness of God. I use heaviness here as a substitute for glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which means literally weighty. Weighty. And so when Psalm 96 says, ascribe him glory, we might actually say, ascribe him weight. Recognize the the heft of God, the weightiness of God. He's heavy. God's glory is more often than not connected to his radiance, to to his light. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians that, that God has made his light shine in our hearts. How? Through God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And when Peter, James, and John follow Jesus up this mountain... They heard God, the the Father's audible voice, for the second time. The first time was when? It was baptism. This is my son. And now the transfiguration. This is my son. I imagine the voice just thundering like an avalanche. I don't know if you try to hear it in your own mind what it sounds like. But but it all adds up to this sort of heavy terror the disciples are are experiencing. This cloud is enveloping them, and and the glory of Jesus' face is shining, and they're blinded by the white splendor of it all. And we read in verse 6 that they fall to the ground, they fell to their faces, and were terrified. Has your heart reckoned with the weightiness of God? Hear the words of Psalm 97.5. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. Can you imagine the front range just melting? The countless galaxies across all space and all time will wear out like a garment, but the word of the Lord endures forever. John's revelation foretells of judgment day when the the great white throne of God is going to descend and him who is on it and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. In his book, Worship and the Reality of God, John Davies sees it working like this. He says, a fluffy view of God, to paraphrase him, a fluffy view of God results in a fluffy worship of God, which results in a fluffy people of God. A fluffy view of God results in fluffy worship of God, which results in a fluffy people of God. Worship renewal begins with apprehending God as glorious. He's the God of glory. It begins by seeing God with the eyes of faith as Peter saw him on this mountain. Glorious. By apprehending by faith that Yahweh is God and there is no other. He is the great I am. He does not exist contingently as we do. His being is self-sufficient. He is the necessary cause of all that is. He is uncreated. He is all-sufficient. He is supreme. He is the Lord of heaven's armies. The Lord who sees, the Lord our maker, the Lord our healer, the Lord our banner. He is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. The nations are to him a drop in the bucket, the psalmist says. He is majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, the God of wonders. He is the exalted one, the holy one, the eternal one, the righteous one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is everywhere present, all wise, all powerful, complete. He is the Most High God, the Ancient of Days, the Consuming Fire, the Alpha, and the Omega. Even now, we move and live and have our being because He wills it. And as I like to remind us, if He were to stop, so would you. 
His weightiness is, is the gravity that grounds everything and everyone. And the mountain of Sinai shook in his presence when he gave the law because it was like a tumbleweed in comparison to just the, the overwhelming density and heaviness of the being of the great I Am, the Creator God Almighty. Now, if this is true, what an irony it is that we who are contingent, we who are finite, mists in the, wind of, in the winds of history, <laughs> sit around deciding if we think he exists. <laughs> Acceptance needs to go the other way. Not will I accept him, but will he accept me? He is glorious. This was the glory that, that shone through Christ on the mountain. Now, what does this mean for us? I think it explains in part the, the, why we worship the way we do in the Anglican faith. This is not a frivolous fellowship of people who agree about biblical doctrine and want to just pat each other on the back about it, where we have our pet doctrines that we get really excited about. This is not a socio-political club. This is not a special interest group. This is not a social justice enterprise. We are the glorious church of the glorious Christ. We gather, first and foremost, to worship him. Our liturgy is, is cross-cultural precisely because it points us away from ourselves and towards him. Our banner is his glory. When, when, the, when the primary focus of Christian worship shifts from his glory to ourselves, or to our pastors, or our worship leaders, or a building, or a production, or a coffee, or, or whatever it is, we need to re... Thank you for the coffee, by the way. It is great. <laughs> but it isn't the primary focus. <clears throat> With eyes of faith, we, we gather on the mountain to behold Christ as He is. And He is, first of all, real, weighty, glorious. Second, in the transfiguration of Jesus, we glimpse the holiness of God. The radiant face of Christ not only points us to His glory, but also to His holiness. For God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all says John. It's not just the light, though, that brings holiness to mind. Look who shows up on the mountain, Moses and Elijah. Well, what happened the last time Moses was on top of a mountain in a cloud with God? He's given the law, the rules that set apart Israel as a holy people, as, as distinct people. So Moses represents the law, and then there's Elijah, who represents prophets. The pro he's, the, he's the prophet par excellence, right? The prophets whose zeal was the holiness of God. So here are Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And when the New Testament says law and prophets, law and prophets, law and prophets, it's the Old Testament. Here's Moses and Elijah, and, and, and these, these figures God has used to make a holy people for himself. But then what does the Father's voice say? You would expect to hear him kind of look at Moses and Elijah and say, listen to them. And so it's shocking for Peter, James, and John to hear, listen to him, my son, Jesus. The Son is supreme. He is the law fulfilled. He is the, the, the promises of the prophets fulfilled. He does not point to holiness like they do. He is God's holiness. <laughs> Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. On many past occasions and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word. Do you think of the sun this way? 
after he had provided purification for sins, making his people holy, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To say that God is holy is to say that that every excellence fitting to the supreme being is found in Christ without blemish or limit. That's what it means for him to be holy. Every excellence fitting to the supreme being is found in Christ without blemish or limit. The angels forever sing this. The church has forever proclaimed this. We will this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And even the the six-winged creatures covered in eyes hide their faces as they sing it. See, an encounter with the holiness of God has left people on their faces in fear. Always has. Abraham, he's humbled by God's holiness and realizes, I am dust and ashes. Moses was humbled in the bright mountain cloud of Sinai. David was left to declare his unworthiness. Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips in the presence of the holy God. And so right on cue in verse 6, we find the disciples plunging their faces into the earth. They're terrified. They experienced what Rudolf Otto calls the, the numinous. The numinous is, he defines it as a fascinating yet terrifying sense of the powerful presence of someone or something entirely other. Something entirely set apart. It's what, what Moses, woe is me, I'm, I have to take off my sandals, I'm standing on holy ground. Christian revivals are marked by the sense of the numinous. They, it always begins that way. The experience of God's holy presence this is why genuine revivals are always then marked by sincere repentance. You know, some of you know what's going on at Asbury, I assume. Some are calling it revival. Others are picking that apart. Either way, it, it seems to follow the biblical pattern. There's been a profound sense of God's presence, the numinous, which immediately leads people onto their knees into humble repentance. People are confessing sin all over the place and repenting all over the place sincerely and profoundly. And what follows is, don't be afraid, the voice of Christ peace. That's the, it's encountering his presence, humility, repentance, and, and the fruit is peace. That's what we're seeing. The power of positive thinking is not the way to revival. The way to revival, you know, you know I get Joel Osteen, what he's trying to do. I don't, I don't mean to be rude. It's just not the way to revival. The way to revival is a, is a heart-deep apprehension of the holy, glorious presence of God in the midst of his people. It's you and I hearing the voice thunder or whisper, listen to him. Listen to him. That's the voice of the Spirit, always. Listen to Christ, which brings the church to her knees in sincere humility and repentance. And even in your own uh, difficulties and circumstances, the things you're dealing with in life, one of the best ways to know if you're on track is if it's leading you to greater repentance if it's leading you to greater humility before God. And then if you're hearing him say, don't be afraid, and you're sensing his peace. Well, what's at stake? Without a vision of the burning holiness of God, says one commentator, worship loses its awe. The truth of the word loses its ability to compel or correct. Obedience loses its luster. And the church loses her morality. And finally, Christians lose their courage to be set apart. All these things depend on apprehending the holiness of God. So perhaps the church today has tended to sort of domesticate Jesus a little bit because the church has so often hit this note off-key. And some of you may be feeling this now. Speaking of a holy God who is basically just really cranky about, about everyone being filthy and immoral, so he's just biding his time before he gets to lock them up in hell. 
Sometimes that's how the holiness and glory of God are, are conceived. That is, that is off-key. Will you bring up the next slide, please, Jen? So, um, go one more. The picture of, it should be a picture of a sun with the word holy on it. Back one more, the other picture. There we go. <clears throat> Sorry, I didn't prepare you very well. The Bible is simply hitting an honest note when it calls God holy. God is holy. That is who he is. Just like the surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, God is holy. If we had the technology to get to the sun, the sun could not decide to become, you know, a cool 70 degrees to make it comfortable for an afternoon picnic. It's just not what the sun is. We'll never get close to the sun without the proper protective technology, or we'll just burn up. That's what will happen to us. Likewise, God's holiness cannot be made a comfortable experience for any old passerby who just wants to dip his toes in. No, it's a volcano. Yet the entire story of the Bible is the story of the holy God longing to be with, not to, not to judge and, 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 and condemn, but to be with, to rescue, to restore, to redeem his unholy creation. All the temple system, all the tabernacle, it's all about God wanting to dwell in the midst of his people, but wanting to make it safe for them to approach. It's like the protective gear we'd need to approach the sun. <clears throat> so how, that's the basic predicament, really, of the scriptures. How can the sun get close to the earth without destroying it? The answer is Christ. We are given, and you can go to the next slide, the picture of Jesus touching the disciple. This is the answer. We are given his glory. We are given his holiness. Through faith and baptism, we are protected by the robe of his holy love, wrapped in his holy light. The transfiguration is not only a picture of who Jesus really is. It is that. It is also a foretaste of the glory that's beginning now in us through Christ and the future of glory that awaits us. We will be holy as he is holy. That's what he's doing in us. This is why C.S. Lewis says, and now you can go to the C.S. Lewis quote, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we joke and work with and marry and snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And so that's the choice. There is a choice. The holiness of Christ will blaze painfully against us or blaze wonderfully within us. This is the honest note that the scriptures sing. And it is God's will that none should perish. It is God's will that none should perish. And so he invites, today, if you hear his voice, listen to him. Do not harden your hearts. Listen to him. Repent and trust Christ. So his glory, his holiness, and finally, his beauty. In the transfiguration of Jesus, we glimpse the beauty of God. One of the first psalms that really captured my heart when I was young, was Psalm 50, verse 2. Out of Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Out of Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. You ever imagine God as perfect in beauty? God is beautiful. The light of his creation at a sunrise or a sunset is beautiful. The man that he made is beautiful. The woman that he made is beautiful. The mountains and the valleys and the birds and the beasts, they're beautiful. But above all, God is beautiful. Again, i got to put Lewis to service here. He says that the greatest and the most beautiful aspects of creation, a dramatic sunset over the front range, a beautiful day of skiing, a, a feast full of, of laughter and fine wine with friends, a loving and sexually fulfilling marriage, these are but 
sense of a flower we have not yet found. Sense of a flower we have not yet found. Because God is more real than we are. God is more real, more bright, more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. This is why the glorious, holy God can see his disciples humbled, faces plunged into the earth in terror, and then say in verse 7, with all the love in the world, get up, don't be afraid. For everyone who bows before his glory will be exalted. He knows that despite these disciples who will go on to be martyred for their faith, he knows that despite that, there is a beautiful future in store for them, for Peter, James, and John. It will go through death, and then white shores and beyond, as Gandalf says. The bright and beautiful bride of Christ, his church, the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem will, will finally crown this earth with her jewels, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. God is beautiful, and he has a beautiful future for you, for his creation, for his church. So let me just point out three things that this means for us, and then close. Tozer says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Tozer's point is that people's souls, and therefore all of human society, tend to be pulled into orbit by the gravity of the gods that we glorify, the gods we assign weight to. And today's world is just, it's flinging chaotically into orbits of pseudo-gods all over the place. They, they capture our attention for a time, but ultimately they, they catapult us out into the chaos of the spiritual void again and again and again. We need the gravity of a real God. This morning's collect offers us two applications. You can bring up the collect. We prayed this morning, O oh God, grant that we beholding by faith the light of Christ's countenance, that is, his transfiguration, may be strengthened to bear our cross and changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Strengthened to bear our cross. You know, before the transfiguration, Jesus has asked his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And then after this moment, Jesus begins his journey towards Jerusalem to the cross. Following Jesus is hard. It can require enormous strength and sacrifice, strength to deny ourselves to listen to him, to find courage and endurance amidst fear and exhaustion, and yet it's not yet cost us our lives. The, the transfiguration rouses us to remember that the Christ we follow is worth following, no matter the cost. He's not just a teacher. He is the God of glory. He's not, he's not just a good man. He made good men. He is God, perfect in beauty. May the Spirit speak to you this morning of Christ's glory, his, his weightiness. He is the Son you're made to orbit. Listen to him. May this vision of Christ's present and future glory strengthen you to endure. And then second, as we behold him in his glory, he, transf- he, he transforms us into his likeness. You know, the same way that, that basking in the brightness of the sun will change your skin, basking in the glory and the beauty of Christ will change your soul. It will warm it. It will nourish it. It will transform it. And his present glory will one day be yours. That's why Paul exhorts, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So as we end Epiphany season and we begin to look to the desert of Lent, which I'm really excited about, Lisa has done just, hopefully you saw the video. If you haven't, please just check out the video that she sent the other day and check out the the Lenten plans that she's prepared. Just, Just very excited for us to do that as a church. So as we enter into Lent, my prayer for us is that we are, we are taken by this vision of the radiant Christ, 
glorious, holy, beautiful. And then we hear the words of the Father resonate within throughout Lent. Listen to him. Listen to him. These other things that we're orbiting, even good things, oh, come and orbit around Christ for at least 40 days together. Listen to him. Father, we pray you would clear away this Lent. Clear away the, the different things that we've assigned such weight to in our life. The things that have drawn our hearts into their orbit. And that you would draw us back to yourself, your son, your glory, your goodness, your beauty. Would you just give, in, give, give our hearts a vision of who you are and, and, and correct our thoughts so that when we think about who God is, we, we think about you, the true God, the loving God, the God of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.